0: Welcome back to Open Source Underdogs. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 38, the last in-person interview recorded at the Open Core Summit. Our guest is Isaac Schulter, CEO of NPM Inc. Many programming languages have a central software registry, but the JavaScript NPM registry is unique. It's the biggest and the busiest by far. For example, it has around four times the number of modules as the number two registry which is Maven for Java. If you want to learn more about NPM, Isaac was a guest on Founders Talk, episode 61. And for an interesting perspective on the NPM ecosystem, you might want to listen to Changelog episode 355. It's an interview with CJ Silverio. As the former CTO of NPM Inc., she provides an interesting perspective on the economics and the technical challenges of running the world's largest package registry. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like it or would like to start a discussion, tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is at FOSS podcast, that's F-O-S-S podcast. So without further delay, onward with the interview. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, happy to be here.
0: Some business people listening to this podcast might not know what NPM is or what it does. Can you give a really quick explanation
1: Sure. This is my uh, uh, very fast uh, 50 cent tour. Basically, NPM is a way for JavaScript developers to share modules of JavaScript code. So if you have some reusable function, something that you're using in a bunch of different places, they can publish that up to the NPM registry. Other developers and other projects can use NPM to install that dependency and also keep up to date when there are updates to it. So uh, if you're depending on a platform or a module or a library or something, you can automatically pull in all of those updates and keep your app up to date.
0: So most other package ecosystems are supported by a foundation, for example, Ruby or, or maybe Python. Why didn't that work for JavaScript and NPM?
1: There's a couple of reasons for this. The the first one is, um, you know, if we go back to the kind of the history of NPM and when I decided to start a company around it, it was my side project for about four years And it grew in in popularity. It was running on donated infrastructure from this, this company, Iris Couch. And it just grew to a point where the scale was too massive for them to be able to afford to keep doing that. You know, I looked at my options and starting a foundation was definitely on the list of things that I could do. Another option was, you know, find a home for it in some big company, try to get hired by like Google or Microsoft or somebody. The reason why I decided to start an independent company was simply owing to the scale and the rate of growth that we were seeing. So, you know, the typical way that a that a foundation operates, you you raise a bunch of money and from a bunch of companies who have some vested interest in whatever the thing is, whether that's a an open source project or some other thing, and then you spend that money on keeping the thing going. So that might be, you know, having developers work on the project or managing governance or marketing or whatever. With NPM, we had this uh, exponential growth curve that we were still at the, at the very beginning of in terms of the number of users on the NPM platform. We'd grown to about a million users. Our rate of downloads and, and package growth was just astronomical. The JavaScript language is is used in pretty much every application out there. You know, a lot of developers are, their Ruby developers or their .NET developers or Python developers, but their front ends are all running in JavaScript. And everybody was increasingly putting more and more and more stuff into NPM and using it very widely. So, you know, we kind of did some some back of the envelope math and realized like, okay, well, we could go raise a couple million bucks to start a foundation and, and be able to put some resources behind this thing. But what are we going to do next year? We're going to need 10 times as much, and then the year after that, and the year after that. And so the task of just kind of continually being in fundraising mode was pretty daunting. And, it, you know, especially because it'd be hard to justify that the benefits to each of those member companies would also keep increasing enough to justify them increasing their investment on the other hand if you have an exponential growth curve of almost anything even rising costs you can take that and take that you know take that to an investor and say here's a thing it's a thing that's growing it's a thing that's exciting you can tell a story about how you're going to go about monetizing that in the future and that's something that
0: is sort of a good fit for a venture back startup so most people use npm for
1: free what do you actually sell? We sell two main things right now. The first is our NPM orgs product, which is a multi-tenant SaaS thing that you can use to store your private code within your organization. That's used primarily by smaller companies and you know or, or front end development teams within larger companies. The price point there is about seven it's seven dollars per user per month. So it, it grows depending on the size of the org and you can have multiple packages all underneath that same org. The other thing that we sell is our product called NPM Enterprise, which is a single-tenant instance of the NPM registry and and website, and it has some additional features like single sign-on or security policy enforcement, that kind of thing, which is more of a need at bigger companies.
0: What kinds of companies use the Enterprise product? Do you segment the market at all? The sweet spot for
1: us is about a development team of 50 or more we do some market segmentation to go after different sectors. There are some sectors that we focus on, and but obviously, I mean, we'll sell it to anybody who wants it. So there is, there's a fair amount of inbound that comes in as well. It's fairly popular in, or we've seen the most traction in sectors that have really high compliance policy and security compliance needs. So financial industry uh, is, is a really big one. And there's also a ton of, you know, a ton of customers with money to spend on their development practices and they get a lot of benefits by having their developers able to to build things in a more frictionless way. The other sort of category of markets that we go after where we've seen some some good results are companies where there's sort of an internal agency model, you know, where you have a web development team that has multiple different website properties. So there might be, you know, hopping between different websites that are all kind of under one big corporate brand. And in that case, there's a lot of benefits to being able to reuse those modules. Also, frequently in, in both types of companies, you know, once, you, once a company gets to a certain size, there's often like a tools team or kind of a platform team that's in charge of all of the reusable JavaScript code that's, that's used across all of the different properties. And in those cases, they also benefit a lot by having something like NPM in-house.
0: In terms of marketing, you're sort of starting from a nice position because everyone knows NPM. But how do you organize sort of the marketing effort so people know what the commercial offering is? And how do you organize the sales? Do you just wait for inbound or do any outbound marketing?
1: We do a fair bit of outbound marketing. And it's a little bit of a double-edged sword, right? Everybody knows NPM, but not everybody knows NPM Inc. or NPM Enterprise. One of the challenges that we run into, which I think is common among a lot of companies that are operating in open source communities, is that people have heard of the thing, but they haven't necessarily heard of the product. One of the things we hear is like, "Oh, npm, that's a company." I just thought packages came out of the ether. I I didn't realize it was downloading from somewhere. So when it comes to our marketing efforts, a, a fair amount of the the work there is in continually beating the drum of like, "Yeah, we have things for you. Like, if you are, if you need policy compliance, if you need security, if you need proprietary code, and you want to manage it using the things that your developers already know and love, then like we have a solution for you." When we go through the, the sales process, typically we have an internal champion, which is usually engineering architect or engineering manager or something like that, who sort of intuitively understands the benefits of NPM. And then the the sales process tends to be one of you know making the case to folks who are not already deep in this ecosystem. So that tends to be people in kind of the like internal development tools, purchasing team, the, the CIO's office, you know, can take a, bu- a a couple of different shapes, but, you know, the, the folks within a large enterprise who manage the spend on development tooling.
0: Diverting a little bit from, from marketing, one of my guests said to me that it's almost better to start a company around a product that you don't write, an open source product that you don't write, because all those engineers who are working on the open source thing they're not billable or they're not contributing to the commercial product. Do you feel that friction at all, where maybe part of the team is really committed to the community mission, but maybe other parts of the organization are more interested in the products that actually generate revenue? And how do you reconcile that? It
1: can be a tough needle to thread. And I mean, I, I don't think that the, you know, not to dispute the past guest who who said that, you know, there's some sense in what they're saying, but obviously I do disagree because of what I've done. I think that the challenge, or at least the puzzle, is to figure out how do we continue to make good on our community mission while in, in such a way that it serves our product interests rather than, and how do we design our product interests in such a way that they're served by the success of the open source community? because and we've we've certainly made some missteps in the past one of the biggest things that just seems it makes good intuitive sense right you have an engineering team you have a web team you have a backend team of course we're going to have an open source team but the minute that you start doing that you create this unhealthy dichotomy even if it's just in your own thinking as a founder and as a manager as a as an entrepreneur where it can be very easy to get into these these dysfunctional patterns of being resentful about well these you know, these five engineers are spending all their time on the open source stuff. And we're just giving that away. And how is that helping the company? And here I am, you know, busting my hump every day, trying to make our website better and trying to sell products and trying to get new logins and new signups. And every time you want to build some new thing, it's like, well, should we, you know, you run into this case of like, should we give this thing away? Or should we charge for it? And the thing that I've come to after five and a half years of doing this, if, if I was smarter, maybe I would have come to it sooner, is just that that's, that's the wrong question. The minute you find yourself asking, should this be free or should it be paid, you've already kind of committed like the fundamental thinking error of putting those two things at odds. The better way to think about it is, what is the free thing that will get someone to pay for this? So what can we give away in such a way that it will open the door for an upgrade path and will open the door for a paid product that is very clear enhancement to the thing that they're getting for free? Some of the best companies in the space that I've seen tend to have a, a an approach of like their explicit goal is that individual developers should never have to pay for our product, but a company should almost always have to pay for it. And that really clarifies the thinking and it clarifies the puzzle in a really interesting way because anything that involves a team of 10 people writing a proprietary application, like they got to pay for that. That's a company. That's a for-profit company. Now, okay, it could also be like a school or it could be a nonprofit org. You can always give those folks a coupon. Like that's not actually a problem. But um, with our enterprise product and with our orgs product, I think we've we've done okay there. Um, orgs are free if they're open source. So if you have five people collaborating on an open source project, they don't and they want to keep a bunch of modules under a namespace. They don't have to pay for that if it's all open source. And we really see that as part of the nice easy transition from like an individual working on open source, a group working on it, and then up to a group working on some kind of paid product. One of the things that became really that we did not anticipate when we made orgs free was actually it, it increased our paid orgs signups. You know, we'd always intended to do some kind of like first month free type of trial type thing and just, you know, kind of didn't get to it cuz startups and time and attention and there's only so many people and only only so much code you can write in a day. And we decided that we wanted to make orgs free for uh, for open source projects. Because we were, there was a handful of different open source projects that we gave them an org and we like, you know, went in our database and marked it as free. And we we're kind of like, this is like, we should just make this a thing. So when we did that, what became, what was surprising was people at companies would sign up for a free org, add their whole team, try it out for like an hour, go, okay, this is going to work. And then they'd flip the flip the switch to be a paid org. And that's really like, I mean, that's for me when kind of the light bulb went off that like. We should not be thinking about what is paid and what is free. We should be thinking about what is free so that it gets someone, makes it easier to buy the paid thing if
0: you need it. So it was all in the honor system? You could sign up as an org and say, oh, well, I'm... You couldn't publish anything private. So you, you, couldn't, uh, you couldn't have a, a package
1: in your organization that, was, that had access control attached to it. So anything you published in, in a free org would be open to the entire world
0: you really almost had to invent a business around this because I I can't say there was like any like direct model like you could choose. And one of the hardest parts of that is figuring out what to charge for that, especially because you didn't have a lot of data. I'm wondering, since you started the last five years, have you had to pivot on the pricing model a couple of times or has it been relatively stable and did you get it right?
1: Yeah, we just stuck the landing. It's been perfect. No, No problems at all. No, I wouldn't say that we've pivoted on the pricing model. We have made some changes that I think are, are somewhat subtle, and most of those are, have been owing to uh, user experience. So around, um, I want to say in 2016 or beginning 2017, I think, I forget the exact dates now, it's all in the lost of the mists of time. So when we originally released our, our orgs product, our, our paid orgs product, basically an organization Again, I mean, you know, you, you build things in the simplest way possible with the stuff you have because you gotta you gotta ship something. And if your 1.0 is perfect, you waited too long. And the way that it was just the easiest way to do it was to say an organization is a a subscription that belongs to a particular npm user. And this gets into like some real interesting subtlety, I think that not a lot of not a lot of orgs users then or now really fully appreciate. But the idea was your org would have an owner that was an npm account the real big problem that came up, and it came up fast, was, well, what happens if, you know, what happens when that user goes away? What happens if we, like, they leave the company, and now what? Like, it's still billing to their account, and their account has this credit card attached, which is a corporate credit card, and, like, the only way to resolve it was actually to go through our support team, which I love our support team. I think that they're great. They do great work, and I'm really happy that they're there and supporting our community and our, our customers. But every time somebody has to contact support, it's like, that's a mistake we made. That's something that we needed to fix. So we kind of went back to the drawing board and said, all right, what is, how do people think this works? How do users think this orgs thing works? They think that they create an org, and they think that they just pay for the org, and the org has some user who is administering it, but they can change that user. So what that actually says to me is, or what that said to me at the time, and, and we kind of landed on, was the organization itself should be the primary first class kind of billing entity. And then the user accounts and the subscription and everything else is attached to that organization, not to some individual user. And so that shift, due to some other sort of subtleties in how it was implemented, we realized that if we made this transition, a bunch of orgs were currently not paying for users who have access to their packages would suddenly have to start paying for those user accounts. And the way that we addressed it was we just we collected all of those cases where that would happen and we applied a coupon to all of those accounts to give them a discount and said, all right, like your price, your bill isn't going to go up, right? Yeah, and so, I mean, you know, we we probably could have just said, well, you know, bad news. I know you're paying $7 a month now, but it's now going to be 21 because you've got these other two users that technically are part of this other org, even though they're in your org also, and it got really hairy. But we figured that the, the user experience hit just wasn't worth it, like chalked it up to like, Thank you for being an early subscriber an early adopter but moving forward it really vastly simplified it so the organization is a top level thing it's like a you know a first class entity in our system every user account costs seven bucks a month that's it there's no like discounts if you're in multiple orgs or anything like that yeah and you know nobody complained. Uh, some folks got an email that said, hey uh, you know we're changing our pricing model this would make your bill go up but here's a discount so it won't there was basically no reaction which is what we were hoping for now on our enterprise product regarding pricing yeah we've been all over the map there and i think um you know you talked about there not being data well with with a self-serve product you have quite a bit of data it's really easy to just throw a survey out there and like yeah it's going to be noisy and you're going to get you know a dozen people who are like i wouldn't pay more than a penny but like you know you can wipe out the outliers and get some some kind of at least directional data right and um one of the things we found was, you know, there was already some services out there, like GitHub, I think, costed like seven bucks a month for for orgs at that time. I think they've since they've since changed their pricing model for their orgs products. So it's like $25 for the first five users and then $9 thereafter. And we've thought about doing something like that ourselves and, and maybe in the future, just to kind of help people get over that initial hump of like, once you add your first five users, it's very, very sticky. So the... F- the easier we can make that seem, it's like 25 bucks and you get five users, that seems cheap. But if, you, if it's $7 a user and you only add two users, there's a pretty good chance you might not like stick with the product. If you get those five users in, now, we, now you've got five people all collaborating on code and they're not going to abandon that for anything because now it's kind of in their process. So with the enterprise product, on the other hand, there really is almost no data. And it's very difficult to get that data. You know, a lot of a lot of enterprise products, even if you go to like companies providers' websites and you look at their enterprise products, it's always call us. You're you're kind of in this like arm wrestling match with the procurement department where your price is like you give us, you know, whatever we can get out of you basically is the price. So I think with our enterprise product now we start at fifty dollars a seat and the product has quite a bit more features in it than our our previous generation of our enterprise product which was quite a bit cheaper and we also have a minimum number of seats in order to qualify for an enterprise product. We don't offer it for less than 20 seats. The nice thing about that is that it immediately selects out everybody who's not actually going to need the benefits of this product, who's not going to need the, you know, actually need the the policy enforcement and and security features of it. So you know, and they they're not going to be as well served by that product. Like they should really be buying orgs. And so if you can look at pricing, you know, it's tempting to look at pricing as like the way that you make money, but really another way to think of it is like how does the how does the pricing act as a filter for who should be using this thing? And how does it work as a signal? Right? If you have a product and you have your you know your product breakdown, your pricing page or whatever, there are companies that are going to just look and they're going to say, I don't want the cheapest one. I don't want the most expensive one. Give me the one in the middle. I don't want to look at all these words and they're just going to buy it. And so you need to think of like, who is that user? Who's that persona? And kind of focus your research there and then figure out, you know, and then work backwards and like, what is their budget and what can they pay? And then from there, you've got a pretty good answer about your price. Every enterprise is going to try and make some argument for why they should be paying less. So start high and let them push you down. And also like, if you don't start high enough, then they're not going to think that it's legit
0: was that one of the hardest parts of um migrating from i guess open source repository or open repository to to business? Just getting that right? That wasn't
1: oh, on the on the list of hard things. I don't think that even makes the top 10. <laughs> there's uh quite a bit that's much more challenging. No, I mean the the other thing about product is like it or about uh, uh product pricing is like I think it's really much more art than science and certainly there's product managers out there who are like pounding the table as they listen to this and sure that i'm super super wrong about it but you know so much of it is is just like you need to figure out a price that you won't go go bankrupt and then you need to figure out how to sell that at that price and the specific number is it 8 or is it 9 or is it 20 or is it 25 like i think at the end of the day that probably matters a lot less than have you built a product that people want to use and have you priced it in such a way that it sends a signal that those people actually are the ones who should be using it? You know, if you look at the pricing of wine, great example of this, because there's like, I don't know, I'm going to offend some wine snobs in your audience, I apologize. (laughs) But a lot of the pricing of wine is like completely arbitrary, right? It's like, are you somebody who likes the expensive wine or who doesn't care? Or are you somebody who kind of wants like, I want it to be good, but like, I don't want to spend a lot. And like, all, I mean, all wine, it's all fermented grape juice. Like it's it's not that different. It's essentially like it's it's just a overstock of wine. That's why they're able to sell it so cheap. But that price signals a particular kind of buyer who is likely to be is likely to benefit from that product. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, it's the same kind of thing, right? You're you're buying this five hundred dollar bottle of wine because you want to show off how rich you are, and like in order to show off how rich you are, it has to cost five hundred dollars. And so like that there's that's why people buy that. You know, in the world of, of software product management, we like to pretend that we're we're a little bit more rational, you know, because we're all like tech people and we're very we're very cerebral and logical. We do math, and I think though it's it still largely just kind of comes down to like what are the products that your product is like, how much do they cost? If you just copy them, it's probably you could do a lot worse.
0: So now I have to ask the question: What were some of the hardest challenges? Maybe this oh, is the I, top
1: one or two. I set myself up for that one, didn't I? So I mentioned a little bit kind of the, the split brain that can happen within an organization when you separate out your free or open source or community offerings from your your paid offerings and think of them as different things. That's a very, very easy error to make, but it's a very pernicious one that really gets in everywhere. And I think it, in order to avoid that error, you have to think about that design, not just in your product design, but actually in your organization design and your strategy in your go-to-market and in, in where you get your investment from and who you have on your board, like it has to really, really inform everything about your company in order to, in order to steer yourself away from that kind of problem. Another big and easy mistake to make is having, having an on-prem and a SaaS product at the same time early in a company's lifetime. Now, eventually you're going to need to have an on-prem product. And if you're positioned well to do a bottoms-up sale, that has to be a SaaS. Because no development team, you know, if it's five people on a dev team and you're trying to convince them to use this tool, they're not going to spin up a server and install it and operate it themselves. They're just not set up for that. If there's a SaaS offering, they're going to take that one. And as an early stage company, you know, when you're talking about like 10, 20 people, if you're building products, like you're going to take every single shortcut you possibly can. And the biggest shortcut you can take if you have an on-prem product and a SaaS product is to start, you know, putting big if blocks in your code base. And you can tell yourself like, oh, they're the same code base. We're totally keeping them in sync. It's all one big dev team. But what's going to happen is even the same developer working on both things is just going to put a big if block and say, you know, if process.env.enterprise equals true, and then, you know, basically fork in place, which is even worse than actually forking two code bases. Because now you have this kind of like convoluted ball of mud we originally did have an on-prem enterprise product we still have some customers who are using it even though we you know we're still trying to kind of like nudge them to our enterprise saas product we reached a point as as a company where we sort of realized like we can't keep running this enterprise product we're we're actually losing money on every sale because the the cost to support and operate and you know get a customer up and running is just too high so we pivoted somewhat we kind of instead said how do we have, how do we take what we do with the registry and with the website and with orgs and everything else? How do we make a, a SaaS offering there? And like, what do the, what do the enterprise customers actually need for that? And we're, we're still figuring out kind of how to play in that space and how to, how to best have that integrated and connected with our self-serve products. But um, it's still a huge step in the right direction. I, and I think, you know, hindsight being twenty twenty going out the door really in our first year with a an on-prem enterprise product and a SaaS teams product at the same time like it seemed fine it seemed like a good idea at the time you know a bunch of people told me like well you know you need to really make sure that the code bases don't diverge if you do that i heard that from a, a bunch of folks at, at github who made who made the same kind of error and i was like okay noted don't let the code bases diverge got it what they didn't tell me was, you're going to let the code bases diverge. That is absolutely going to happen. It's inescapable. Like you can either be a SaaS company or an on-prem product company. And those two companies are very different shapes. If you're going to be an on-prem product company, that means there's a lot more of a top-down sale, most likely, or it just has to be so easy to install and start running like on a laptop, right? It's almost certain that you're going to need some really good um, professional services skills within your company. Because making a customer successful with that product is going to require that you have somebody who knows how to stand it up and how to operate it and kind of which buttons to push and which knobs not to push, how to tell if there's a problem, all of that stuff. So that means training, that means customer success, that means like really building in good metrics into the product itself, but in such a way that they're not going to offend people who don't necessarily want data collected about them or if it's behind the firewall, like how that all works. And on the other hand, the way that you go to market with a SaaS product is completely different. It's more about like adding hooks and adding limits and adding, you know, these paywalls within your your free product. So when you go to your, you know, to your settings page, or you go to like view some metadata, or you go to view a report, or you go to add a new package, it can say, hey, like you need to pay to use this feature, right? And that's, those are two completely different mindsets. Now, at a certain point of maturity you could reach a point where you have enough, you, maybe you follow the bottoms up path, the bottoms up path eventually gets to the top and the top down path eventually gets to the bottom. But if you try to approach it from both sides at the same time, I just feel like that, that almost never can work out well. Now, there are companies that, do, that end up doing both, but if you really look carefully at the companies that are successful doing both, most of them started on one end and then made it to the other you know, either they started as a top-down company and they, they did well enough with like evangelizing and marketing and getting adoption and gaining traction within these these large companies that it became sort of a de facto standard and then open source parts started to kind of become the way that developers expected to do things. Or they started as a bottoms-up strategy where every developer just eventually started to expect that this is how things worked. And when they came to a big company, they said like, we need to sign up for these. And then eventually they built out features that built up to that enterprise level. And um, you know, obviously NPM was positioned to do the bottoms up thing, and so approaching both at the same time was was I, I would not do that again.
0: What's your approach to building the team? Before there was a company,
1: there was there was me and there was one guy who was in Thailand, another couple couple of folks, one was in uh Eastern Europe. I mean these were all kind of like again, this was the whole like donated infrastructure stuff. So it was whatever that other company was doing. I didn't really recruit them. It was kind of just like who I ended up with. Uh, and, And luckily, some of them were really good. I think that's, you know, a lot of NPM's success really owes to that. When we founded the company, you know, it's easy to forget now, because it doesn't feel like it was that long ago. But video conferencing was not as good as it is now. Chat apps were not as good as they were, as they are now. Like Slack didn't exist. Zoom didn't exist. I think Zoom might have existed, but it was it wasn't what it is now. It wasn't as you know ubiquitous and easy to use. So initially, we focused our hiring on the Bay Area, which seemed seemed reasonable. It's what you do as a Bay Area startup. We opened an office in Oakland, mostly because that's where I live. Yeah, we went from there. Uh, so the, the initial team was almost all in Oakland. There was one one person we we got doing ops stuff who was in um, South Africa, and. Part of the challenge was like adding remote people was just really hard because the whole team is there in Oakland. Like we're we're talking about we're talking about strategy and, and tactic and products and technical direction and stuff over lunch all every day. Like it's it was really, really hard to kind of keep people in the loop if they were not co located with us. Yeah, you know, eventually we moved from IRC to Slack and we started doing more and more stuff on Slack. We found that we actually needed to have a little bit more time zone coverage, and so we added some other some other developers, hired somebody who was in Europe, and and that really pushed us to operate in a more distributed friendly way. So doing more of our discussions on Slack, uh, having our meetings with with Zoom, and we kind of just kept adding remote people because it was like, well, we can. You know, there's these two developers that we want to add, we want to hire, and like can do remote, and one of them's remote, so okay, right. And like you do that again and again and again. After a while, it got to a point where, you know, it's like our COO is in Halifax. Our CTO is in Toronto. I'm here in Oakland. We have this big, beautiful office, and I'm one of like four people in it. (laughs) You know, we, when we rented that office, we like, we had this plan to like eventually grow to, to like 50 people. And we were looking at the office we were in, we were 13 people and we did not fit. Right. We had a single, Conference room, a single room with a door that closed, and yeah, we grew to about thirteen people, and then we were just like, "This is this is ridiculous. We got to get out of here." So we found a bigger space, and we, we knew that we would end up growing to you know between thirty and fifty people over the next couple of years. So we rented a space that could that could house that many. I think it was just a few weeks or a month ago, actually, we um, or maybe a couple of months ago. By the time this this airs, where we we had this interesting situation where our, our landlord wanted to move us to a different spot within the building, and we're like, "God, oh, that's." you know, we'd been thinking for like, been thinking for like a year, like how stupid it was that we had this big Oakland office and like, we'd really love to get rid of it, but we've got another year on the lease. And they were like, hey, we want to move you from the 11th floor to the fifth floor. We're like, how about we just leave? They were like, oh, cool. We get to rent the space out at, you know, 2019 prices instead of keeping your lease. Like, yeah, go. And so it actually worked out great. It was a little bit sudden the way that sort of fell in our lap. But yeah, now we're just 100% uh, remote, everybody works from home, and that freed up a lot of capital for us to actually offer like a a monthly um, work from home allowance to cover things like internet and a desk light or like whatever work expenses you might have. Whereas previously, it was like, we really can't afford to do that because we're spending our whole like office budget on an office. If you want to work in the office, like we've got this great office, but most of our staff was, was not in the Bay Area. So, in terms of like, where do we recruit people, or how do we how do we find talent? We we do get a lot of resumes. We do get a lot of interest in, especially in uh, technical roles. When it comes to other roles, when it comes to non technical roles, things like sales or marketing. I mean, I I hate that term non technical. Like they're they're profoundly technical jobs, right? But like, if I want to hire a product manager who doesn't write JavaScript, if I want to hire a, when we hired our COO, we hired our VP Finance. It's like it kind of is the same thing every other company does. We use a combination of just our networks, which has some pros and cons, right? The obvious pro of hiring somebody you know is, you know them, so there's a good chance that, you know, there's a little bit more of like a connection, they're maybe a little bit more motivated to make it work, et cetera. The downside is you probably know people who are like you, and so you can very quickly and easily get into a, a bad cycle of like uh, where your kind of diversity just goes off a off a cliff or even worse, you know, where, like, people who are kind of in the in crowd are, like, included in decisions or have a little bit more power or authority within the company than they probably should. And it can get very, like, toxic and weird that way. I think that we've avoided that for the most part. The other thing we've done, in especially in, like, tough-to-find roles, we've had uh, some success with executive search firms. We've done that a couple of times we've had uh, and then also just you know posting stuff on LinkedIn on lever on our other social media cha- uh, channels we have our own uh, npmjs.com slash jobs that shows what roles we have open and and people apply for them
0: so last question any advice for new entrepreneurs who are starting a business where open source is a part of their business model
1: I talked about this a little bit but I'm going to go ahead and just repeat myself because I feel like this is really important and really easy to
0: to miss and really easy
1: to not understand the importance of it. You have to craft your plan such that doing the free thing actually serves your, your strategy. And there's a lot of subtlety to that. I don't have like a, you know, one weird trick that will fix everything. You know, doctors hate him. But like, you definitely need to think of like, if we give this thing away for free, what happens? Part of the thinking there is that like, you know, imagine if you have like, you know, ants roaming around on a dirt floor, or on, on like a, on the ground, like if you pour some honey in one spot, that's going to change the whole ecosystem. And that's kind of what happens when you start giving away something for free. Whether it's an open source product, whether it's a service that you say, like, you know, this is free for open source packages, or for open source projects, or for open source users, whatever, you're creating a pile of honey in the middle of all these ants that are currently just kind of roaming around in their own different ways. Like, they're all going to find it and they're all going to come to it. And it's like, okay, now what? What I mean by that is like, when you give something away to free, for free, you are fundamentally kind of like disrupting an ecosystem. So it's important, none of the ants are complaining about the honey, but like you've now changed the shape of the, of the scenario. And that can be really, really good, or it can be really, really hazardous. You know, it's tempting to be like, well, I'm, I'm charging for this thing and I'm giving this thing away. And how do I convince the free people to buy the, the paid thing? Like, you really need to back several steps up and think, what do these people need? What's the thing that I can sell them that will address that need? And what's the free thing that's going to drag them over? Instead of saying, what do I give away for free? And then separately from that, what do I pay for? And how do I balance these two? Like, they have to be one thing in your mind.
0: Isaac, that was super interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Huge thanks to the Open Core Summit for connecting us to Isaac and for volunteering their only sales office to provide a quiet place to record. Don't miss the next Open Core Summit. It was one of the best conferences I attended in 2019. Where else can you get a critical mass of open source founders in one place? It's essential that we foster an event like this so we can share experiences about what's working in open source business. Transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com. Music from Broke for Free and Chris Zabriskie. Audio editing by Inez Tenji. Production assistance by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. Have comments? Tweet at us. The Twitter handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Every subscription helps. Next week, we have Shannon Williams, one of the founders of Rancher. He was fantastic, so don't miss this one. Until then, thanks for listening.